Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6, and we're going to be continuing our series in Proverbs. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible this morning, uh, or if you just want to use the Bible that we're going to be uh, using this morning, the translation we're going to be using, uh, you'll find a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. And our pas- passage this morning is on page 531, page 531. Okay, so Proverbs chapter 6, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 20, and I'll read through to verse 35. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor will he get, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, may we come with a sense of humility, confessing and acknowledging that your word is true and it is good. It is good for us. It leads to blessing and it leads to life. And Father, I pray that we would humbly submit ourselves to your word. As we do so, Lord, we pray that we would know the blessing of walking in wisdom, and we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, in the book of Proverbs, there is a father and a son. Okay, so that's the context of the book of Proverbs. A father is speaking to his son, and the father is admonishing his son to walk in the way of wisdom. And one of the ways we know that the father in the book of Proverbs is a good father is because the father is particularly sensitive to the challenges and temptations that his son will face. That's one of the reasons why in these opening nine chapters that we've been looking at in the book of Proverbs, there are three major blocks of teaching that address the joys and dangers of sex. Actually, a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, the first block of teaching on this subject, and there the father speaks to his son about the blessing and joy of sexual intimacy within marriage. Now, as we come to the second block and the third block of teaching on this subject, the father turns his attention to the, subject, to the idea of sexual immorality. And as we look at these two blocks of teaching, we're actually going to do something a little different than we normally do. Normally, I would just kind of walk through these verses that I just read and unpack them and apply them to our lives and to our uh, current situation. But in the spirit of the Father, this Father who is particularly um, 
eager to speak into the present context and life of his son. I want to follow that example a bit. And so as we go through these sections in the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is this week we're going to focus on the subject of homosexuality, which as we think about sexual morality is very much so a hot topic of our day and very relevant to the time that we live in. And so I'm not going to so much be unpacking these verses as much as use the general theme that's spoken of here regarding sexual immorality to then speak specifically about the subject of homosexuality. Then next week, as we get into chapter 7, we will go back to our normal method of just walking through that passage verse by verse, and we will speak about heterosexual immorality next week in chapter 7. Now, as we take up the subject of homosexuality this morning, I should begin by saying that I know there are some who are here with us here this morning who have been involved in homosexual experiences in the past. I know there are some who struggle with same-sex attraction. I don't doubt that there may be some here this morning who are practicing homosexuals. I know that for almost all of us, we have friends or family members who are practicing homosexuals. And let me just say right up front that in this message, I don't in any way intend to be unkind or belittling towards homosexuals. In fact, my goal this morning is rather simple. I just want us to answer one question. And the question is this, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? You know, when it comes to this subject, there's so much confusion about what the Bible teaches on this matter. In fact, that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to address this subject. Perhaps this morning you're in a situation where you'd say, you know, I've spoken to people who approve of homosexuality, I've spoken to people who disapprove of homosexuality, and it seems like people on both sides of the argument appeal to the Bible. And it's all very confusing to me. Well, my friends, I hope that we can clear up some of that confusion this morning. I don't think, in fact, that the Bible is confusing on this subject. In fact, the Bible is remarkably clear. We just have to take the time to listen and understand what it's saying. To answer this question, we'll briefly look this morning at five key passages on this subject. Now, I should say right up uh, uh, from the get-go that there is so much more that could be said than what I'm going to say this morning. We'll have to look at each one of these passages very briefly and just make a few comments. But I hope that as we walk through each one of these passages, there'll be a greater sense of clarity and understanding, and hopefully it will be helpful to you. Let's look, first of all, at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So going back to the very beginning of the Bible, if you're using one of the black Bibles in the uh, chairs that's provided, it'll be on page 1 and page 2 of the black Bibles, okay? So Genesis chapter 1, we'll be flipping around a fair amount this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, I'll read verses 27 and 28, okay? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 reads... So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And then if you flip over to chapter 2, so just one page, chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, read this way. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she, is, she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, right away, one of the things that we see here in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is that gender, male and female, is at the heart of God's design for marriage. The author of Genesis actually stresses that male and female, in these chapters, he stresses that male and female were created distinct, yet they complement one another. Uh, There's a number of different ways, and we see this in the passage, just point to a few uh, pieces of evidence here. One is that you notice the way that the woman was created. She was taken from the rib of Adam, so she was taken from Adam. She's distinct, yet she was taken from Adam. She's of the same essence, of the same kind. And this is also reflected in the naming of both of these individuals. So in chapter 2, verse 23, we read, She shall be called, it's even reflected in the English, right? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see how the two words are related to one another. In the Hebrew, it reads, She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. You see, they are distinct from one another, yet they are of the same kind, of the same likeness. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 24, as we come to this point of marriage, what is, what is happening in marriage? You see, the author writes there, and, and, and by the way, I should say this is Jesus' understanding of marriage. When Jesus was asked about marriage, he appealed to this verse. The author says, Therefore a man, or an ish, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, isha, and they shall become one flesh. So you see what is distinct The one has been created from the other. The one has been taken out of the other and they have been made distinct. Now are coming back together in marriage in a one flesh union. They're being united together once again as one. And this one flesh union incorporates so much in terms of the marital relationship. It's a spiritual oneness. It's intended to be a relational oneness, an emotional oneness. There is a unity, an intimacy, a oneness in marriage that you are to experience that you can't experience in any other relationship. And there's a physical aspect of this oneness, right? So so the oneness, the totality of the oneness is to be represented in the physical act of sexual intercourse. And even that, God has, dis- has created in such a way that the two parties are distinct, yet they complement one another. It works, right? The parts fit together, we, sh- we could say. And all of this is by God's design. Uh, the, the creation of male and female, the distinctions between the genders, the way they complement one another, the one flesh union of marriage, all of this, we learn from Scripture, is by God's design. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that the ultimate purpose of this marriage is to point to the greatest realities in the universe. Paul says that the ultimate purpose of marriage, this one flesh union, is to point to the reality of the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church. So it's interesting when you look at the Bible that the Bible opens up with a marriage. The Bible begins with romance, a man and a woman coming together in a one flesh union. You know where the Bible ends? The Bible also ends with a marriage. Listen, this is amazing. In Genesis chapter 1, you have the creation of the heavens and the earth. 
And there is a marriage, man and woman, united together. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, when it speaks of God and His people coming together and being united forever, you know what you have? A creation of a new heavens and a new earth where everything is made right. Sin is ultimately eradicated. And there is a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of Jesus. Jesus and His people, the church, united together forever. And you see, at this point, marriage has fulfilled its ultimate purpose. What was only a sign, a signal of the greater reality has now become the greater reality as Christ is united with His people forever. You see, the implication of this is that when we talk about marriage, when we talk about sexual intimacy within marriage, when we talk about the subject of homosexuality, we're not just picking one or two verses. It's not just we should you know, rummage through the Bible and pick a couple verses to talk about this. But when we look at the Bible, we see that the whole narrative of the Bible speaks to the reality of marriage being between a man and a woman, distinct, yet they complement one another. A one flesh union that points to the greater reality of Christ and His church. This is the original design for marriage we see in the Bible. And then that leads us to our second passage. Our second passage is in Genesis chapter 19. If you flip over just a few pages, if you're using the Black Bible, it's on page 13. So Genesis chapter 19, and here we have the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now I'm not going to read the whole account, but I'll just read verses 4 and 5 and then a couple of verses at the end. In verses 4 and 5 we read these words, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, All the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. And that know them is actually a Hebrew euphemism for sexual intercourse. Uh, It's similar to, in Genesis, uh, we hear of Adam knowing Eve, and they bore a son. Uh, He didn't just shake her hand, right? This is a reference to sexual intercourse. And that's what's being referred to here. The men wanted to know, the men of Sodom wanted to know these guests sexually. And then if you flip to the back of the, uh, to the latter part of the chapter in verses 23 to 24, we see the result. Really, I'll start in verse 24. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. So in these verses, what we have, and and you can read the whole account for yourself, but we have two men. They come to the city of Sodom. They're actually two angels. They come to the city of Sodom, and Lot, in an act of hospitality, invites them to stay with him for the night. And as they are staying with him uh, that night, later on in the evening, the men of Sodom gather and they're pressing on the house and they're demanding that Lot hand over his guest so that they might have sexual relationships or sexual relationship with these men. Lot, tragically, instead of handing over his guest in an attempt to protect them, hands over his daughter. And the men of the city rape his daughter throughout the night and then leave her for dead. And then you see at the end of the chapter, God's response to this barbarism and violence. He destroys the city in judgment. Now, some have argued, as you come to Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is synonymous with homosexuality throughout the centuries. That's actually where the term Sodomites comes from that refers to the act of homosexuality. 
But as you come to this text today, there are some who would want to argue that the sin of Sodom is not homosexuality, but rather the sexual sin that God is condemning in Sodom is the sin of rape and violence. Now, how should, how should we make sense of that? How should we respond to that? Well, in one sense, that's absolutely true. God never, whether you're talking about a homosexual relationship or a heterosexual relationship, God never affirms rape or violence. And surely part of the reason for God's judgment on the city of Sodom was the, reason, the way in which the men treated Lot's daughter and the violence and the death that resulted. But it is also true that as we look at the Bible's assessment of what took place in Sodom, that God's judgment that came upon the city was for more than just the rape and the violence. There's actually, in a number of passages in the Bible, there's a sense that God's anger with Sodom's sexual sin extended to the very desire that these men originally had. So in Jude chapter 1, verse 7, Jude is another book in the Bible. Jude is in the New Testament, and the author of Jude writes, reflecting on the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by going under the punishment of eternal fire. So here it seems that Jude is not only condemning the rape and the violence that took place in Sodom, but the desire itself. And Jude is pointing, Jude is pointing to that desire itself that the men of Sodom had for Lot's guest as unnatural and immoral. And I think this becomes increasingly clear even as we move further along in Scripture to see what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. That leads us to our next verse. So the third uh, passage of Scripture is Leviticus 18. Turn over to pages 97 and 98. 97 and 98. And uh, this is, I may have said Leviticus 19. I meant Leviticus 18. So turn to Leviticus 18. And on page 97, Leviticus 18, verse 22, we read these words. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then if you flip over to Leviticus chapter 20, in verse 13, we read these words. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, the theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. The idea that the people of God are to be holy, they're to be set apart, they're to be morally pure. And the reason why they're to be set apart and holy and morally pure is because God is set apart and holy and morally pure. And here, the author of Leviticus, assuming the original design that God had for marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, speaks of the prohibitions, of any number of prohibitions regarding sexual immorality that any deviation from God's original design of sexual intimacy being expressed within the confines of a covenant marriage is deemed sin. And so he speaks of enlisting any number of, and you can read the chapters for yourself, but listing any number of sexually immoral acts, he lists sins like incest. He lists adultery. He speaks of bestiality. And yes, he speaks of homosexuality. Again, there are some who would even, in approaching a passage like this, try to argue that, well, you know, when the Bible speaks against homosexuality, it's not so much forbidding homosexuality itself as some immoral practices of homosexuality. 
like if one were to rape another person in a homosexual act, or one homosexual partner were to be unfaithful to another homosexual partner, that that's really what the Bible is condemning. But my friends, I just read the passages for you. Any honest reading of the text sees that the Bible is prohibiting far more than that. In fact, what we see in both of these verses is that there are no qualifications. The author does not say homosexuality and engaging in homosexual acts is okay if you're committed to one another, or if you're in a long-term relationship, or even if you're married to one another. No, it's unqualified. You see there in chapter 18, verse 22, it says, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. In other words, the act itself is an abomination to God. And it's clear, especially in chapter 20, that the act that's being spoken of here is in no way forced or coerced. It's not an instance of rape. Because in chapter 20, verse 13, we read, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. In other words, this is consensual sex. That's why both are guilty. And still the sin is, in being consensual, characterized as an abomination. You see, according to the Scriptures, there are certain sexual acts that even if you have consenting adults, they are still immoral because they're immoral in and of themselves. So, for example, in these chapters, incest falls in that category. Adultery falls in that category. Even, God forgive forgive me for having say so, bestiality falls within that category. Even though there may be consenting partners, it's still immoral because the Scriptures say the act itself is immoral. Now, there are others who might say, yeah, but you know, I've read Leviticus, thinking of other objections. Someone might say, yeah, I've read Leviticus, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of weird things in Leviticus, okay? So there's things in Leviticus like, you know, you shouldn't wear uh, certain clothing that has mixed fabric, or Leviticus prohibits eating pork or shellfish, or in Leviticus we see this elaborate sacrificial system, but Christians don't obey any of those commands today. So it seems that Christians are just picking and choosing. Why wouldn't you obey and follow everything that's prohibited or commanded in Leviticus and not just pick certain commands like this command against homosexuality? Now, let me just say, I think we need to spend a little bit of time clarifying this, but let me just say, for those who try to make that a serious argument against a Christian sexual ethic, it just shows that they have never seriously read the Bible. And there are some things here as it relates to how New Testament Christians should adopt and relate to the Old Testament law that can be confusing and difficult to understand. But even a cursory reading of the Bible reveals that with the coming of Jesus, there is a new understanding and a new application of the Old Testament law. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, there is an elaborate sacrificial system. When the people of God committed a sin against God, they were to offer an animal sacrifice for their sins. The idea was that the sin they had committed is transferred to that animal, and the animal suffers the punishment instead of that person, God extending grace and forgiveness and mercy to that person, the animal dying in their place. But with the coming of Jesus, Jesus comes and He says, 
I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What Jesus is saying is that he is coming to fulfill the sacrificial system, that he is a sacrifice and he can be offered as a sacrifice in a way that animals could never be offered as a sacrifice, that he can pay for our sins, that he can take our judgment and condemnation in a way that animals could never do, and that he is the ultimate sacrifice, and as a result, no more sacrifices need to be offered. All those sacrifices pointed to him, but now he is the ultimate lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not say, yeah, all that sacrificial system stuff in the Old Testament, those people didn't really know what they were talking about. That's kind of antiquated, outdated. You don't really need to worry about that anymore. That's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus instead says that is by God's design. That was all intentional, and it was perfect. And yes, it was a display of God's mercy and grace for a season, but I have come to fulfill that. I am the ultimate fulfillment. Those were only pointers, sign, uh, post, pointing you to me, who is the ultimate sacrifice. There are other aspects of the Old Testament law that are still binding for Christians today. But understand We don't determine what's binding for us today and what's not binding for us today just willy-nilly. Rather, the Bible tells us. In fact, one of the ways we know as we look at the Old Testament law whether a command is still binding today or not is whether it's repeated or not in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles. In each one of these commands that's mentioned in Leviticus regarding incest, regarding adultery, regarding homosexuality are all repeated in the New Testament and applied to New Testament Christians. With that in mind, let's turn now to the New Testament. This is actually our fourth passage. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. And if uh, you're turning there and using the Black Bible, it's on page 939. 939. Romans chapter 1. And uh, I'll read for us verses 18 to 27. 18 to 27. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Here it is, verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul here is talking about humanity as a whole and our kind of headlong fall into sin. And one of the reasons why this passage is so important is because when it comes to this subject, some folks will say that homosexuality, the Bible speaking about homosexuality, is just a cultural matter. So the idea is that, well, of course the Bible speaks against homosexuality and says it's not something that should be practiced because the Bible was written in a different time and in a different place. That was just a cultural thing. But now we live in a new time and a new place and there's new cultural considerations and we've moved beyond that now. And so maybe back then, even when you talk to some people that hold this view, they may even kind of give you the sense that like, well, back then they they didn't really know what homosexuality was, you know. They didn't really know how to deal with it because maybe they didn't even know what it was. But my friends, that's actually far from the truth. In fact, we know from historical records, biblical and extra-biblical, that homosexuality was very prevalent in the Roman Empire. Paul is writing to the city of Rome, and in the city of Rome in particular, homosexuality was widely accepted and practiced. It would not be uncommon if you were walking the streets in Rome to pass a homosexual prostitute. And it was in this cultural context, Paul writing to a young church, that he speaks very clearly and condemns homosexuality as sin. Notice Paul's assessment of homosexuality in these verses. In verse 26, he speaks of homosexual desires as dishonorable passions. And then he gives the reason why. In verse 27, he says, For they exchange natural relationships for relationships that are contrary to nature. Now, do you see what Paul is doing there? Paul is appealing to creation. Paul is appealing to the original God-intended design for nature and for humanity. In other words, Paul is moving this out of the category of this is just a cultural preference to the category of this is a universal norm. You see, in the Bible, there are certain things that the Bible says in one culture, maybe it's not okay to do this. In another culture, in another time, it's permissible to do this. You have freedom. You can choose between the two. But there are other instances and occasions where the Bible says, no, this is a moral norm and ethic that is universal for all times and all places, no matter where you live or what time it may be. And Paul squarely places homosexuality in that category. He says, this is according to God's original design and intention. He appeals to creation itself. Now notice as well, and we need to see this in this passage, if you look down at verse 32, we need to hear this as we move on, before we move on from this uh, Romans chapter 1. In verse 32, Paul says this. He says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, my friends, especially for those of you here this morning who are professing to be followers of Christ, for those of us who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, we need to hear this. 
Paul says that the offense, as it relates to homosexuality and the other sins that are listed here, the offense is not just in doing them, but in approving of them. In other words, Paul is saying that on these matters, we can't just sit it out. You know, we can't just sit this one out. We can't just take the approach of, well, you know, let's, let's just not talk about that because it makes people feel uncomfortable and people get upset. It's a real hot topic issue. We just kind of let people be and do their own thing and things will go smoother then. No, according to the Apostle Paul, it is not loving for God's people to silently watch as folks pursue a path that is personally harmful and eternally destructive. The assumption under everything that Paul is saying here is that God's design is good for us, that God's design leads to blessing and life and flourishing, and therefore we would lack compassion. We would grossly be lacking in love if we did not point others to God's good design and intention and call them to walk in the path of life and blessing. And if they choose that path, we should support them and help them, and love them, and encourage them to pursue that path. With that in mind, let's turn to our fifth and final passage, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is in page 955, if you're using the Black Bible, 955. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to read for us just two verses, verses 9 and 10, okay? Verse 9 and 10. All right, so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is a city in the first century. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, one of the things that's interesting about these verses is, uh, you know, some people who are really smart, you know if they're really smart, if they're able to make up a word, and people don't make fun of them for making up a word, but they actually start using that word, okay? So the Apostle Paul here actually coins a new word. He makes up a word. Uh, this word, we don't find it any other place in Greek literature. And the word there, let me see if I can uh, pronounce it. It's actually translated in the uh, translation we're using this morning, men who practice homosexuality. But the word is actually arsen ukoite, arsen ukoite. It's a combination of two words. Arson being the Greek word for man, and koite being the Greek word for bed. So literally, it would be translated bedders of men, or those who take men to bed. Now, the interesting thing about this is that most likely, Paul is, coins this new word by reflecting on Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. Because if you go back to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, the Greek translation, the word for bed and the word for man are both there in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And now Paul is putting those two words together in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
So in Leviticus 18, it reads, you shall not lie or you shall not bed with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 reads, if a man lies or beds, it could be translated, with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And it seems that Paul, reflecting on those words from Leviticus, now takes these two terms, man and bed, and puts them together in order to coin a new phrase. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Paul is indicating that far from being passe or outdated or antiquated or no longer applicable, the commands given in Leviticus regarding homosexuality are applicable to the church in Corinth, a church that lived in a society that was rampantly immoral. In fact, we talked about before that Rome was known to be sexually immoral. Corinth was even far more so. In the Roman Empire itself, Corinth was particularly known for their sexual debauchery. In fact, there were temples throughout the city that if you went to the temple, there were prostitutes there. And if you had sexual intercourse with the prostitutes in the temple, it was viewed as worship to the pagan gods. It was in this context that Paul spoke clearly against homosexuality. Notice as well that according to the Apostle Paul, this is serious stuff. We could say this for the Apostle Paul was a gospel issue. Why would he say that? Because Paul says in the passage that those who practice such things, you see it there in the text, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul says that to give oneself to a lifestyle of homosexuality is to be excluded from the kingdom of God. It is to be eternally condemned. As with all the other sins that are listed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? Just like the sins of idolatry and theft and greed and drunkenness and rebellion and deceit. And on all of these things, we should take the same approach that the Apostle Paul takes to say that these things don't change based on where culture shifts left or right. But these things, according to God and according to his word, are sin and worthy of his judgment. And they are not to be celebrated, but rather to be repented of so that we might experience the grace and the mercy and redemption of Christ. There is also in this passage extraordinary good news. Okay? Did you see it? As I mentioned before, Corinth was known throughout the Roman Empire for its sexual debauchery. And Paul is writing to this young, struggling church in Corinth. And he says to them, Speaking after he lists all these sins, right? In particular, listing the sin of homosexuality. He says, and such were some of you. In other words, as Paul writes to the congregation in Corinth, there are some who were present there who previously had been engaged in homosexual experiences, who had previously lived homosexual lifestyles, who had been involved in the sexual debauchery of Corinth. And Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, Paul is saying, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save idolaters and thieves and liars. Jesus came to save drunks. And Jesus came to save homosexuals. He came to save sinners like you, and he came to save sinners like me. 
On the cross, Jesus died for all the sins of his people, taking our judgment and our guilt and our shame so that there is no more guilt, there is no more judgment, there is no more shame, but we are forgiven and washed and made clean and accepted before God. And oh, my friends, it should be the case that in every gospel church, we should be able to say, such were some of you. And praise God, it's the case here at Berea. We are all desperately in need of the grace of God. You know, there's some here this morning, after hearing what the Bible has to say on this subject, you might say, well, you know, I'm still not really sure how I should respond because I think maybe I was born this way. Maybe I was born with a natural propensity towards same-sex attraction. And you know, my friends, that may be the case. We are all broken and we are all sinful and sin has affected us in so many different ways. We all have natural inclinations towards different sins. Some of us it may be anger or worry or fear or despair. Some of us it may be addiction or some of us it may be propensities towards heterosexual immorality like pornography. But the good news of the gospel and the hope that is laid out for us here in this passage is that no sin is inescapable. That in Christ, whatever sin it is that you are particularly inclined to, whatever sin it is that you particularly struggle with, in Christ there is hope of redemption and forgiveness. If you call out to Him, Christ will save you and He will forgive you. And not only will He redeem you and wash you clean so that you're made right before God, but by His Spirit, He will empower you so that increasingly you are able to walk in obedience consistent with God's original design so that you might know the blessing in life of walking in wisdom. Oh, my friends, let us be a community that speak out with love and compassion, absolutely but also with truth as it relates to homosexuality, as it relates to heterosexual immorality. And may we speak with great hope, confident that in Jesus Christ, there is redemption and forgiveness and new life. Oh, my friends, praise God that Christ came to save sinners like you and me. We all desperately need the grace of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we confess that without your word, we are lost, that we um, are wandering among any number of options that would lead us into confusion and even ultimate destruction. And so, Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that speaks clearly, and that shows us the way of wisdom and life and blessing. Oh, Father, may we not be like those that Paul characterizes in Romans 1, who claim to be wise, but have become fools. But Lord, may we submit ourselves to the truth of your word, finding true wisdom there. May we know life. Lord, I pray for each person here that we would look to Jesus Christ the the perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
the true man of wisdom, the only one who can lead us in the way of life and blessing. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Make us a people who are faithful and true to your word. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.